Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug and alcohol abuse, murder, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1986, brothers Amjad and Basid Farooq Alvi lived in Pakistan, where they fixed PCs and sold cheap pirated software on floppy disks. They owned an electronic repair shop called Brain Computer Services. Backpackers often visited the store to buy bootleg programs, but this small customer base wasn't enough for the Alvi brothers. Their clientele sometimes lent the programs to their friends, so the tech-savvy team devised a scheme to stop it. They created a computer virus and loaded it onto the floppy disks. If their original customers gave the software away, it infected the new PCs, preventing them from booting up. Then it left a cryptic message deep inside the drive that read, quote, Welcome to the dungeon. Beware of this virus. Contact us for vaccination. Then it listed the shop's name, address, and phone number, like a twisted business card. The Alvi brothers thought they had a foolproof plan. Anytime someone wanted their computer fixed, they'd have to visit the shop. But the ploy worked better than they could have ever imagined. The virus spread to over 100,000 PCs all over the world. It was eventually named after the shop that spawned it, Brain. A computer programmer from Santa Clara, California, read about the infection in his local newspaper. And he realized he had the cure, virus protection. This realization would become his greatest achievement and eventually cause his fatal downfall. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. This series, we're exploring how we share our digital identities and who controls our data. Today, we're asking, how have viruses and cyber attacks shaped the internet? We'll meet controversial tech pioneer John McAfee, who designed the first antivirus program and then turned against his own creation in a spiral marked by paranoia, lawsuits, and allegedly murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In the past few episodes, we discussed just how valuable personal data can be. Hackers make money off stolen passwords and social security numbers. Companies collect information from their customers for profit. Unfortunately, it's easier than ever for the American government to spy on its citizens or for a hacker to take someone's house by stealing their identity online. We're vulnerable to attack anytime we log on. Now the floodgates are open, it may feel like nothing can protect our data unless someone can build the ultimate anti-malware software. Many have tackled this fruitless quest over the years. Developers and politicians have tried to create safe programs, but perhaps they failed because they were part of the problem. To create the perfect cybersecurity program, it may take someone outside the system who's willing to disrupt the industry, even at the cost of disrupting themselves. Enter software pioneer John McAfee. From the start, he had big dreams. He considered himself a, quote, science nut with a taste for fantasy. He graduated college in 1967 with a bachelor's degree in math. Ironically, he wasn't interested in computers, but when he attended a trainee program at General Electric, or GE, he quickly caught on. He automated the systems with ease, and by the end of the summer, McAfee was hooked. However, GE only taught him a little coding. He wanted to master it all. So... McAfee applied for a job at NASA, and to increase his chances of landing a position, he embellished his resume. He had three months of experience at GE, but instead he wrote he had three years. The ploy worked. He charmed NASA at the interview, and they offered him a programming job. Armed with swagger and little else, McAfee had lied his way into one of the U.S. government's top agencies. Getting hired at NASA was one thing, but working there was another. When his superiors tasked him with processing satellite data, McAfee had no idea what he was doing. He soon got overwhelmed. For an entire week, McAfee popped psychedelics to let the answers come to him. He barely slept, walked all over the city, and wrote pages of notes. By the seventh day, McAfee came up with the exact program he needed, and his NASA colleagues were impressed. He didn't have to fake it anymore. The gamble had paid off. Years later, in 1985, 40-year-old McAfee was sober, settled down, and married. He worked a steady job at an aerospace and defense company in Sunnyvale, California, but he was restless and looking for distractions. Drugs and alcohol were out, so he tried filling his life with other hobbies. Luckily, a new technology hit the scene, the Internet. Now, the Internet of the mid-80s was very different from the World Wide Web of today. 
Back then, it wasn't even known as the Internet. It was just a collection of separate servers that ran chat rooms, online games, and bulletin board systems, or BBS, which were like a budding version of social media. The interface was text-only, but that didn't make it any less entertaining for McAfee. He loved socializing online. He even created a BBS for BBS owners, called Homebase, so they could talk shop. He befriended a lot of people and even arranged real-life pizza parties for them. A year later, in 1986, McAfee boasted that Homebase had become the, quote, largest, most active programming bulletin board in Silicon Valley. But then, the brain virus threatened to wreck every computer across the globe, including everything McAfee had built. McAfee saw news reports about the Pakistan computer store, and they fascinated him. Viruses weren't exactly new, but this was the first one that could hide from programmers. Viruses could also corrupt data beyond repair, and not just in personal documents. It could corrupt the fundamental files that made each computer run and render every infected PC useless. Not only that, these infections replicated endlessly, spreading from one machine to the next. And if the programmers could take down so many users with one floppy disk, there was no telling what else they could do. Every home computer was now in danger. With that in mind, McAfee got to work analyzing the brain virus and learning how it worked. And that's when he came up with a big idea, software that could find the infection, remove it, then repair any damage it had caused. He called up one of his home base friends, a fellow programmer named Dennis Yell. McAfee had a lot of respect for Yell, who had a reputation for writing flawless code. Together, they created the very first antivirus software called VirusScan, and McAfee uploaded it to the Homebase BBS for free. According to McAfee, over a million people downloaded VirusScan within a few days. It was a huge success, and McAfee encouraged people to keep the program on their computers to protect against other malware. But there was a problem. VirusScan only cured and detected the brain virus. It had no effect on many other malware programs that popped up in 1987, including the Vienna virus, Ping Pong, and Cascade. That's because each affected PCs in different ways. If McAfee wanted VirusScan to work, he needed to stay one step ahead of hackers. Eventually, he quit his job and spent every waking moment working on VirusScan. He hired Yell and about 20 home-based friends to program at a breakneck speed to keep up with the new viruses. McAfee worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and sometimes slept in his computer chair. But he loved the thrill of it all. McAfee felt like he was playing an intense, colossal game of chess. And he was good at it. He and his staff cracked most of the major viruses. The project took over his 700-square-foot home. McAfee's employees sat in any seat they could find using a washing machine as a desk. Before long, his wife, Linda, got very annoyed. So she rented nearby office space for McAfee and his programming crew. 
It was the official beginning of the first antivirus software company, McAfee Associates. McAfee distributed VirusScan with an initial free trial. But if companies wanted to use the program long term, he charged them a licensing fee. And it wasn't cheap. It could cost up to $100,000. This allowed the business to install as many copies as they needed. In return, McAfee pledged to fix any new computer virus within two hours. Corporations flocked to license the software. By 1992, 50% of Fortune 500 businesses used VirusScan, and McAfee Associates dominated 70% of the entire antivirus market. McAfee himself made $5 million a year and became the foremost expert in antivirus software. But while he enjoyed his newfound fame and fortune, technology was advancing. The modern internet started to take form, and a new debilitating virus surfaced, one McAfee wasn't sure he could stop. Worst of all, this malware program was capable of rendering most of the world's computers completely useless. Next, McAfee faces a massive cyber threat. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now back to our story. In 1992, antivirus pioneer John McAfee ran the most popular software company in the world. But he was about to face his greatest challenge, 
His workers had identified a new virus called Michelangelo, hiding in computers across the globe. It was dormant, but they believed it would spring to life on March 6th. Once activated, Michelangelo would infect each computer's startup process just like Brain had. Unlike Brain, the virus would make the system unusable. It spread quickly, and not just to PCs, but to printer servers and other machines as well. McAfee said it would have shut the computer world down simultaneously. That would have been unheard of. About a month before Michelangelo was set to launch, John McAfee went on a press blitz. He told the world the virus could permanently destroy up to 5 million computers worldwide, causing at least $60 million in damages. A competitor, Central Point Software, confirmed this. Every single machine was at risk. Panic swept through the business sector. Companies wondered what they could do to stop the attack. They were terrified of losing valuable information. Luckily, McAfee didn't just want to spread awareness. He also offered the antidote. McAfee Associates had come up with a software fix, and he gave it out for free. In his eyes, the world was saved. A month later, March 6th arrived. And Michelangelo fizzled. The virus only attacked about 20,000 computers, just 0.4% of what McAfee had predicted. He later claimed Michelangelo was as mild as it was because his software saved the day. However, others didn't buy his explanation. They accused McAfee of lying or even creating the virus as a publicity stunt. He denied the allegations, but it was true his media appearances had turned McAfee into a household name, which was more of a curse than a blessing. The Michelangelo fiasco stained McAfee's reputation in Silicon Valley. Tech insiders thought he was a sham. McAfee said the initial thrill of beating hackers at their own game wore off. He didn't see viruses as a real threat and called his own business corporate and bland. In 1994, McAfee resigned and sold his stake in the company he'd built from scratch. He walked away with about $100 million on top of the $50 million he'd already had in the bank. But it's not clear whether he left voluntarily. The press speculated the company's leadership actually pushed him out due to the Michelangelo backlash. Either way, McAfee never returned to his company or his former popularity again. He separated from his wife, Linda, and moved from Santa Clara to Colorado. He bought a $20 million mansion deep in the mountains. Eventually, he accumulated nine houses across the country. In fact, over the next few years, he went on a spending spree, both in real estate and business. He spent a ton of money trying to strike gold again like he once did with VirusScan. He invested in a bunch of startups, but his old fake-it-till-you-make-it philosophy no longer worked. The companies all floundered. Meanwhile, even though he was no longer with McAfee Associates, the founder's legacy was still entwined with it, and they were poised to capitalize on growing fears about cybersecurity. 
people realized Brain and Michelangelo weren't just one-off occurrences. Malware was now an ongoing threat to computers. There would always be viruses, and people were scared hackers could seize their data without mercy. Many consumers had major concerns about storing their private information on PCs. So, when the healthcare industry wanted to digitize medical records, many worried, were their computers really safe? To assuage those fears, Congress approved the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. In 1996, President Bill Clinton signed it into law. HIPAA makes sure your health information isn't disclosed to insurance companies or doctors without your consent. Nobody can sell your medical details to the highest bidder. And if your info is leaked, offenders can receive up to a $250,000 fine or even jail time. Americans had a law protecting their health records. But of course, laws can be broken. And not even celebrities are entirely safe. For pop stars, the effects could be toxic. In January 2008, singer Britney Spears was entangled in a bitter custody battle with her ex-husband, Kevin Federline. Her erratic behavior and drug use had cost her sole custody of her two young sons. At one point, Federline's representatives came to her Los Angeles home to pick up the children. Instead of turning them over, Spears locked herself and the boys in the bathroom. Crying, she refused to open the door for anyone. Eventually, Federline's reps called the police, who broke down the door. The cops admitted her to UCLA Medical Center for an involuntary psychiatric hold under California law. Spears' hospitalization caused a media frenzy. Paparazzi photographers and reporters camped outside the hospital for a glimpse of the popular singer. Everyone wanted to know, was the world's most famous pop star going to be all right? Naturally, some of the UCLA staff were curious too, but unlike the press, they actually had access. HIPAA ensured her records and information could only be shared with her explicit permission. But these UCLA workers didn't care. They snooped through her files. Soon, the hospital leadership noticed a lot of people peeking at Spears' information. 25 employees, including doctors. The UCLA medical records system tracked who viewed which files and for how long. So the officials knew these intruders had violated the singer's HIPAA protections. After an investigation, UCLA Medical Center fired 13 employees, suspended six others, and disciplined six physicians for breaking the law. It was a stark reminder. While HIPAA was supposed to protect everyone's privacy, it couldn't even save a well-connected celebrity from being exploited. And if Britney Spears was still vulnerable to a data leak, the rest of us didn't stand a chance. That's why McAfee was so passionate about developing a program that would stop all unwanted attacks. And for a brief time in the 90s, he was successful. But after he was allegedly pushed out by his own company, he spiraled. As he faced financial ruin, lawsuits, and rumors about his poor mental health, McAfee's behavior became more erratic. According to some reports, this culminated in a murder. 
Coming up, McAfee reemerges in public life as a homicide suspect. Now back to the story. By 2009, John McAfee's $100 million fortune had shrunk to a mere $4 million due to the recession. But financial decline wasn't the only challenge he faced. McAfee was also in legal trouble. One suit claimed McAfee was responsible for the death of a student who crashed a plane at his flight school. Another blamed him for an injury at one of his properties. McAfee believed these people only sued him because they thought he was extremely rich. Still, he needed to escape the legal action, and if he left the United States, he'd be harder to track. Even if he lost one of the trials, the plaintiffs would have to find him. McAfee scoured for the perfect hideaway and spotted a large secluded beach house in San Pedro, Belize. He bought the property and in 2008 stepped inside, seeing it in person for the first time. But McAfee's life in Central America was hardly an escape. In fact, it was even more hectic than the United States. McAfee wasn't one to lie around on a sandy beach sipping piña coladas. Instead, he slipped back into his old manic, drug-fueled habits. He started new companies and hung out at a brothel called Lover's Bar, where he flaunted his wealth, buying rounds of drinks for everyone inside. He started relationships with many of the young sex workers who worked there, and eventually, eight of them moved into his home. They established a sort of polyamorous boarding house, where each woman had her own bedroom. But while McAfee enjoyed their company, he was growing paranoid. He thought his hedonistic lifestyle made him a target. He believed local gangsters were pressuring at least two of his girlfriends to extort him. He installed a panic room in his bedroom and set up other hiding places. He collected guns and had multiple dogs who barked loudly. He slept with a loaded shotgun pointed at his bedroom door. He constantly changed his house staff and even hired a security detail. His increasingly chaotic beach house didn't quite fit with its relaxing Caribbean surroundings, and McAfee's neighbor was definitely not pleased. American retiree Gregory Fall often argued with McAfee about his erratic behavior. It's unclear how heated their interactions became, but it was bad enough that in November 2012, Fall filed a complaint with the mayor's office. A week later, Fall's housekeeper found Fall dead, lying in a pool of his own blood. He'd been shot in the head. Early the next morning, 15 Belize police officers approached McAfee's beach house to question him. But McAfee viewed the police as corrupt. There was no way he was going to agree to an interrogation. McAfee retreated to a hiding spot above a closet and lied on a piece of plywood. He stayed there, listening as the cops searched his home. After 18 hours of waiting, the residence was quiet, so he snuck out of his house. From there, McAfee went on the run, sleeping in empty homes in a Chinese warehouse. He wore disguises and dyed his hair jet black. Meanwhile, he professed his innocence on his blog and to the American press. 
He claimed the Belize Police Gang Suppression Unit was trying to frame him for Fall's murder. He told Wired magazine, Under no circumstances am I going to willingly talk to the police in this country. You can say I'm paranoid about it, but they will kill me. There is no question. However, the authorities denied his claims, and the press didn't buy his excuses. Wired marveled at how a wildly successful tech pioneer could have possibly murdered someone and disappeared into the jungle. Gizmodo claimed McAfee was experimenting with illegal drugs in Belize and was part of the drug trade. McAfee had been the face and name of virus protection in the 90s. He'd been one of the first Silicon Valley computer moguls, and now he was a wanted man. And someone as famous as he was couldn't stay hidden for long. In early December 2012, a month after McAfee went missing, a vice reporter tracked him down. The journalist promised to keep his whereabouts private, and the reporter stuck to his word. He simply wrote a piece and took some pictures. Unfortunately, as we've seen in previous episodes, nothing online is truly private. Every digital photo has metadata hidden inside the image file. This can show where the photo was taken, as well as time and date. Authorities checked one of the images Vice published and pinpointed McAfee's location. He'd traveled deeper into South America and was hiding out in Guatemala. His cover was blown. The jig was up. Before long, McAfee was being deported back to the United States. Back on American shores, McAfee had a new challenge to grapple with, and it had nothing to do with the murder charges. In his absence, McAfee Associates had been sold to Intel, which expanded its business. They developed other products and stocked physical copies in stores. And though new programs had nothing to do with John McAfee, some still bore his name. It's possible McAfee took stock of his situation and realized he wasn't okay with his own creation anymore. He was going to stop McAfee Associates. So in 2013, he uploaded a bizarre, well-produced YouTube clip titled How to Uninstall McAfee Antivirus. But this was no instructional video. The four-minute sketch was a scorching takedown of his former company. In it, McAfee wore a sumptuous red and black robe, a la Hugh Hefner. He read profanity-filled emails from VirusScan customers complaining about the software. Then women, some in nurses' outfits, stripped him down to his boxers and suspenders. He snorted something that looked like cocaine and ranted that the software takes over everything, whether you like it or not. At the end of the clip, he drew a gun from his suspenders, aimed it at a laptop, and fired. McAfee's on-screen behavior was odd, to say the least. He told Reuters he was mocking the media's unhinged portrayal of him. Afterward, Intel announced all McAfee-branded products would be renamed Intel Security. McAfee told the BBC he thought it was great news. He said, I am now everlastingly grateful to Intel for freeing me from this terrible association with the worst software on the planet. 
With those words, he publicly severed all ties with his groundbreaking software. He roamed all over the U.S. He recorded himself going on unhinged rants and uploaded the videos to Twitter. He even claimed U.S. officials were coming to assassinate him and make it look like a suicide. Though the tweets were fanciful, one of them put him in real trouble. In 2019, McAfee said, I have not filed a tax return for eight years. I live off of cash from McAfee, Inc. My net income is negative, but I'm a prime target for the IRS. Here I am. He likely knew he'd be arrested soon for tax evasion, so he fled again, this time to Spain. A year later, on the other side of the Atlantic, all his lies and schemes finally caught up with him. Authorities arrested him at the Barcelona airport on federal U.S. tax evasion charges. Just a few months later, Spain agreed to extradite him back to the States. The next day, still in jail, he died by suicide. The life of John McAfee was both epic and awful, and it's unclear what exactly led to the disturbing downfall of Data Protection's first hero. Conspiracy theories swirl around his death. For instance, his wife Janice doesn't actually believe he took his own life. Perhaps the U.S. government didn't want McAfee interfering with their ability to spy on their citizens. But there are many other explanations. More likely, his downward spiral was due to his deteriorating mental state. Early in his career, he fixated on protecting the world from rampant viruses. This preoccupation led him to work through the night and take heaps of drugs, psychedelic and otherwise. The obsession took over his life, and the narcotics might have impacted his mental stability. Sadly, his drive to save the world from computer viruses may have put him on a path to destruction. Even a disruptive tech pioneer like McAfee couldn't protect us from cyber threats. And perhaps it was futile to try. In recent years, we've only become more vulnerable to malware attacks, data surveillance, and hackers. In the past decade, illegal websites have proliferated, selling ransomware software, stolen credentials, and contraband. These pages are so popular, the cybercrime industry will be worth an estimated $10.5 trillion by 2025. Many of these users do their illicit work on a mysterious hidden part of the internet, the dark web. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time to ask, does cybercrime pay? For more information on John McAfee, amongst the many sources we used, we found No Domain, the John McAfee tapes by Mark Eglinton, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer and never share your digital passwords with anyone. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. 
This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Ben Caro and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.